Hello everyone, this is Flo from the Great War Channel podcast. This is the second edition of the year 2018, which is of course the centennial for the year 1918. And 1918 was a pivotal year in well, the history and of course in the course of World War One. One faction it was definitely extremely uh, important for was the American Expeditionary Force. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And I have a guest with me. His name is Ed Lengel. Yes, hello, and thank you for having me on the Great War Channel. Uh, I'm the author of several books on the American forces in World War One: To Conquer Hell, About the Mizargon, Thunder and Flames, About Other Battles. And uh, you can find information on those books on my website, which is www.edwardlengel.com. I will certainly put a link to that in the episode description so you can find it if you missed it. Um, Ed, before we start talking about you know the historic experience of the ex American Expeditionary Force, I would like to ask you one one question: Is um, has the centennial helped raise awareness for the American experience in World War One? It has helped somewhat. There has been a great deal of effort on behalf of the American World War I Centennial Commission, which is doing a wonderful job in raising awareness across the country, and most individual states also have their programs. But there's still a certain resistance on the part of the American public to giving this war the attention that it deserves. I think there are a number of different reasons for that. Uh, it's not the type of war that the American public usually likes to read about. It, there's a sense that there was no obvious victor and that it was a tale of suffering and woe. And uh, I, I find that, that there's just a certain reluctance to engage with it, which is a shame, but, but there certainly is more awareness than there was. Oh, that's great to hear. Um, so even though there is this reluctance, how did you um, decide to tackle this topic then? I've been fascinated with the war for about 30 years, actually, and it began by reading the great war memoirs and diaries that were written by uh, participants from many different countries, obviously being an English speaker. I read the books from uh, Great Britain, Ireland, Australia, and even the United States, and I've been fascinated by the human experience of the war, how individuals dealt with the war psychologically, how it changed them, and then how it changed their societies. So I've been preoccupied with it for a long time now. I think that's uh, one of the things that uh, strikes everybody who um, dives into uh, World War One is the the human factor in it. There's so many uh, diaries and personal notes about it and everything. That was certainly something that uh, that touched, uh, you know, all of us here in the team working on the Great War as well, whenever we read something about it. And the literature is magnificent. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Let's talk a bit about the American Expeditionary Force. Um, maybe as a rough outline, can you tell me what Pershing and his men were facing uh, around this time 100 years ago? So we had, the American forces had about five divisions in France in February of 1918. 
uh, 6th Division was just arriving. That was the 32nd Division. So we didn't really have very many forces in France. Uh, some of them had had some experience at the front on quiet sectors of the line. We had been subjected to some raids, some small-scale combat, but the priority at this time, 100 years ago, was simply to get as many troops into France as possible. So we were beginning just at this time a massive campaign of shipping as many troops overseas as we possibly could in anticipation of an expected German offensive on the Western Front. I think everybody knew it was going to happen. Uh, so it was a frantic time. And there was a, a great deal of concern about getting those troops to France, but also getting them ready to fight. That's, of course, um, basically um, two opposite uh, kind of goals. You, you either get them there quickly or you get them there well prepared. So um, how did uh, Pershing uh, and his staff uh, deal with this kind of challenge? Well, Pershing came to an agreement at around this time with his British and French counterparts that they were going to focus on shipping men to France. And so that meant that the ships that carried them over the Atlantic were filled with men, but not with equipment. So the American troops who arrived did not have machine guns for the most part. They didn't have tanks. They didn't have aircraft. They didn't have a lot of other uh, support equipment. They were just men in uniforms. And for the most part, what they received once they uh, arrived in France was equipment that had been supplied by the French and the British. Uh, again, that was a decision that was made simply for speed. And certainly the French and British had been pressuring Pershing for some time to amalgamate American soldiers into the French and British armies. That would mean having them put on French and British uniforms and actually fight under French and British officers. He resisted that, but he had to compromise in the end. And through much of the spring and the early months of 1918, you'll find American forces from the company level up to the um, the regiment and even the di the division level being inserted into French and British armies so that they can experience combat at the front. And um, if I would envision myself as being uh, a soldier um, being shipped over there without any uh, equipment, I mean, that certainly is something noticeable when you are shipped uh, even on the American side already that you know, no uh, equipment is being transported with the same ship you're going to. So my uh, my imagination would be, okay, I'm just going to be sent there as cannon fodder. So how did the soldiers feel about that? The soldiers had very little understanding of what they were about to experience. There certainly was a great deal of concern about the lack of weaponry and the fact that they had not been adequately trained at all. For the most part, the training that they had received had consisted of drill and of marching. So there was a certain degree of concern there, but most of the American doughboys, as we called them, were simply excited and enthusiastic. They felt a vast self-confidence. They had been taught to believe, uh, one thing they got from their training, they were taught to believe that the American spirit and the specifically American way of fighting would completely transform the war in the Western Front and would defeat the Germans. So 
they were they were confident, if not completely oblivious. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, you already mentioned that it was um, pretty obvious that a German offensive uh, was being planned on the Western Front. The war decisive um, operation uh, masterminded by Ludendorff. So um, what were the, I mean, you already said that there was a certain time pressure, but uh, I mean, in terms of combat experience, you just said you had, we had a few minor, um, a few minor skirmishes, uh, a few uh, stations at quieter sectors. Um, the British and the American, uh, the British and the French soldiers, of course, knew what combat meant. So um, how w was the American command and the soldiers looking forward to that German offensive, which might have been the mother of all offensives so far? Yes, uh, unfortunately, the American higher command was very reluctant to learn lessons from the British and French, who, as you say, had learned quite a, quite a lot uh, about how to fight the Germans on the Western Front. Uh, Pershing himself believed that contact with the French and British might actually corrupt the Americans and get them used to fighting in trenches and depending on heavy, heavy weaponry such as artillery. Uh, so he was willing to accept a certain amount of learning and training, but he was determined that Americans would not fight in trenches, that they would restore open warfare to the Western Front, and that they would fight in a specifically American way, which harkened back to the French view of 1914, uh, that it was the individual soldier with his rifle and his bayonet who would take control of the battlefield. Uh, so Pershing had complete confidence, but there was very little understanding of how it would be implemented. And I think uh, Pershing and most of his generals thought that we would have more time than we did. Even though we knew the Germans were about to attack, we expected the French and the British to be able to hold them off uh, for a fair amount of time until we could get to the front. Uh, we did not expect the catastrophe of March 21st, 1918. Okay, and um, I mean, hindsight is 2020, but did no, none of the uh, French officers tell Pershing about the Black Day for France, where they lost, I think it was uh, 25,000 soldiers killed in one day by their very much uh, outdated tactics by then? Yeah, they did tell him, but uh, he and most of his officers simply brushed that aside. They didn't want to listen. Uh, there was a complete obliviousness. They believed that morally the French and British were already beaten and that we were better off not listening to them and simply fighting according to our own traditions. And we paid for it. We paid, we paid the price for it uh, in 1918 because we suffered fairly heavy casualties. Yeah, we, uh, I mean, we visited the uh, Musagon American Cemetery and uh, you can see the price that uh, the, the AEF paid there, uh, pretty much displayed. Um, so let's, let's jump ahead a bit. I mean, um, so we have this um, time pressure, this kind of compromise between um, training, getting enough men there, um, also getting them equipped. So once the German offensive basically launches, um, how, how does Pershing react then? I mean, it must have been quite a shock for him once the Germans actually advanced 
far, far further than he anticipated. It was a shock for him, and by April, when uh, British Field Marshal Douglas Haig issues his famous backs-to-the-wall order, the saying that our backs are to the wall and every man must do his duty, it's clear that uh, we have to get American forces to the front as, as quickly as possible. Uh, Pershing has no choice but to use the divisions that he has close to hand, and those are the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Divisions, also the, the 26th and 42nd Divisions, and to rush them to the front at uh, what appears to be the point of crisis. But even then, it takes months to, to get them into place. It's really not until the end of May of 1918, after the French uh, debacle on May 27th at the Chemin de Dame, that American troops uh, approach the front, uh, particularly the American 2nd and 3rd Divisions. Uh, and it isn't until the very end of May and the beginning of June that we enter combat on a, on a fairly large scale. So, but they were already shipped to France and they were training there. Still, it took them if, uh, weeks to get ready. How, how uh, is that possible? Well, the... The five divisions that had been at the front, now joined by the six, had only entered the line on quiet sectors, um, generally along Alsace-Lorraine. They had only experienced small-scale raids. They were, for all intents and purposes, still completely green. Part of the problem was that American divisions were ridiculously large. They were of about 20,000 men per division or about twice the size of a European division, that created all kinds of logistical problems, not only for preparedness, but for moving them to the front. Part of the problems we had were just logistical. Uh, there was so much pressure on the railways already, uh, and getting the troops uh, to where we needed them was just very difficult. Okay. and. Um I mean, by uh, by the end of May, the situation had uh, changed quite a bit already. Um, but uh, nonetheless, the Americans, um, you know, jumped into the fray, so to speak. And uh, how did they um, how did they overcome the first shock, so to speak, of actual fighting in this war? Well, the first division to really enter major combat is the second division, and that's a division that's made up half of U.S. Army troops and half of Marine troops, and it's the U.S. Marines who uh, enter the fighting at Bella Wood on June 6th. Now, unfortunately, the Marines pay the price for uh, Pershing's refusal to learn from the British and French, they assault German lines using parade ground tactics. They suffer horrendous casualties uh, advancing head-on against German machine guns. And it takes them some time to learn, and really what they learn, they have to learn on the job, so to speak. The individual Marines have to learn themselves. Now, the characteristics of the American troops that appear from the very beginning is that they are extremely aggressive, Uh, there's no doubt about that. They have this tendency, even being green troops, when they're cornered by German forces, American troops will often fight to the death. The problem is that their tactics are extremely clumsy. 
at the beginning. Uh, they suffer the price. But even German official records, and I've studied the German records for this period, uh, indicate that the germ that pardon me indicate that the American forces learned incredibly fast. But again, they did not learn from their officers; they learned themselves how to fight. Quite a few soldiers had to pay the price, um, but of course, quite a few also survived and had this kind of experience and. Do you know what the feedback loop was to get this kind of experience back into the into the troops for the next battle or the next skirmish? Really, each division had to learn on its own. Uh, there was uh, a certain inertia in the American higher command of taking lessons from the front, learned at the front, and then... Uh, developing new doctrines and new tactics based on those lessons. You find that as each American division enters combat in the summer and fall of 1918, they have to learn the same lessons all over again. And often each division enters combat and um, suffers terrible casualties. But over a period of several weeks, uh, they begin to learn, develop combat experience, and to become pretty effective troops. But you can't, um, you cannot credit uh, the U.S. Army's um, higher command with that. You can really better credit the individual soldiers. That's uh, definitely quite an, quite quite interesting. And as I understand it, this kind of um Well, learning on the job, as you call it, was also uh, basically the baptism of fire for quite a few um, soldiers and officers who would later be quite influential in the American armed forces. Is that right? Yes, there's no doubt about it. Uh, many uh, American generals, such as Douglas MacArthur, George Patton, and Mark Clark, uh, were involved in the fighting at the front and implemented the lessons that they learned in the Second World War. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower was not involved in any combat, but he was in the Army, and he did learn himself from what he experienced at the front uh, and carried those ideas uh, into the future. All right, and um, was one of these experiences actually to have like an inter integrated learning uh, experience and to listen to this kind of feedback from the from the ground and from the allies? Yes, it was. It took a while for that uh, that lesson to seep into the army command. Uh, certainly, the the U.S. armed forces in the Second World War are much more proficient at applying lessons uh, that they learned uh, across the army. Uh, for example, after our disaster at the Kasserine Pass in Tunisia uh, in 1943, we apply uh, the lessons that we learned pretty quickly. Uh, that is not true in World War I, uh, and that, but again, that's because we've never fought a war like this before. This is completely unprecedented, and uh, that, that resistance to, to studying and planning ahead of time really uh, was something that hurt us in 1918. You just said uh, that the Germans uh, noted this in their, in their um, frontline reports and everything, but how did the perception of the American troops change in the eye of the British and the French? 
The British and the French were extremely disappointed by the initial American performance. But one of the things that's most interesting is that uh, small American units that fought embedded in uh, French and British forces, again, they were sometimes at the company level or at the regiment level or at the division level, cooperated on the whole pretty well with the French and British and learned lessons that um, really helped them out in the long run. For example, there was a regiment of the United States 3rd Division that was fighting right next to Bella Wood, but it was embedded in a very experienced French division. And that regiment of the 3rd Division performed extremely well. It took a good deal of heavily defended German territory at very low cost, thanks in part to the lessons that it got from the French that were fighting alongside them, and in fact performed better than did the Marines in the initial stages of Belleau Wood. Uh, so in time, though, the French and British came to respect the qualities of the American troops. Again, they were very aggressive. They were very brave. Um, they just needed to learn. Um, one, one particular experience, of course, in the AEF, um, and I think this is fitting to talk about since it's Black History Month in the, in the US, is, of course, that the Wilson famously resegregated some of the public sectors, including the army, And Pershing, on the other hand, was a general who, well, his nickname was Blackjack Pershing, not because he was a gambler, but because he had already f commanded black troops. And of course, African Americans were serving in the AEF. And how did their experience differ from maybe their uh, fellow white soldiers in the AEF? To Pershing's credit, he was a fairly progressive thinker on the use of black troops uh, at the front. Uh, as you say, he had commanded them before. The problem was that racism was absolutely pervasive in the U.S. armed forces at the time. Uh, there was an expectation among most white officers as well as white troops that black troops could not fight. Uh, and Pershing had to deal with that. Now, there were two American um, black American divisions, the 92nd Division and the 93rd Division, uh, which were commanded by white officers uh, because there was no willingness to accept black officers in a combat role. The 92nd Division fought in the Meuse-Argonne as part of the American army and performed very badly. And it performed very badly, largely because of its white officers and their lack of confidence in their men. They just did not do well. The 93rd Division, by contrast, was sent to fight with the French. And under French command, the 93rd Division performed extremely well in combat. Uh, several American black uh, soldiers either then or eventually received medals of honor for their bravery at the front. Um, But that was because they were fighting with the French who were willing to give these troops a chance to show what they could do. Uh, but on the whole, World War I is not a, uh, not a happy time uh, in terms of race relations and, and the U.S. armed forces. But did the performance, for example, of the 93rd Division, um, was it a step into uh, onto changing that? Uh, in, the, in the future? No, it was largely ignored. Uh, instead, most American observers uh, commented on the failure of the 92nd Division 
and they used that to justify their argument that black troops could not fight. And that's why you see in World War II, the U.S. Army remained segregated and that black troops continued to be very poorly treated uh, in World War II. We, we did not learn those lessons well. The 93rd Division has gotten some popularity uh, in recent years as the Harlem Hellfighters, that's correct, right? That's right. Yeah, that was a regiment of the 93rd Division. Uh, but that's really only in recent years, the, say over the past 20 years or so have uh, black troops in World War I received the attention that they deserve. Oh, that's very uh, good to hear then. Um, is, is that or is there any other thing that you would like to say that has been, I would say, um, that has been a wrong public perception of the AEF? Well, one wrong conception is that the Americans really did not participate in the war in any significant manner that the American troops really did not experience combat uh, in, any, in any significant way, and that's just not true. If you look at the fall of 1918 in a three-week period, over 25,000 Americans were killed in action, which is about half the total of Americans killed in the entire Korean War and a little bit less than half the total of Americans killed in the entire Vietnam War. So we were certainly intensely involved in the war. And although we learned many painful lessons, there's no question that the individual American soldiers and Marines performed very well. Uh, and by the end of the war, they had become formidable troops. Well, thank you, Ed, for your time. I think this is a very wonderful um Closing line, um, if our listeners want to learn more about the American experience in World War I, um, I encourage them to visit uh, Ed's vet's website and check out some of his books. Um, I th we will certainly check them out to um, you know, pimp our coverage for the upcoming months for our show. And of course also check out the World War I centennial that Ed mentions and also works for, is that right? That's right, I, I consult with them as an advisor. And uh, the World War One Centennial Commission has a podcast. They, you know, just by chance interviewed Indy and me for our show last week. But also generally, if you want to know more about the centennial and the uh, commemorative events of uh, this year in relation to World War One in the U.S., check out their website and their podcast. If you want to learn more about the AEF in general, check out uh, Ed's work. And I think you, of course, should subscribe to our show as well if you want to learn more. So uh, see you next time. Thank you.